Well, please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this evening to the book of Psalms and turning to Psalm 129. Psalm 129, and this is found on page 518 in the church Bibles. And uh, we're looking at this psalm in its entirety, and it has the heading, A Song of Ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which wither before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. We have been uh, looking at uh, this collection of psalms together uh, over the last number of weeks, uh, a collection of psalms that are known as the Songs of Ascents. And these 15 psalms all have that common, common heading to them. But we have been saying that these psalms were not just brought together uh, for the purposes of uh, the people of God as they came to Mount Zion in their pilgrimages for their, uh, uh, their annual feasts in the Old Covenant, but that these psalms also give us an appropriate or a fitting description of the journey of faith. Um, they touch on many different themes uh, that help us understand the life of faith. They've touched on our view of God. You think of Psalm 121. But they've also touched on our view of God's people, Psalm 122. They've also touched on our understanding of the past, as well as our understanding of the future. Psalm 124 talks about how if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed up. It was helping the people to make sense of their own past. Psalm 126 talks about the prospect of a glorious future, how the people of God can live with hope uh, because their God is a God who restores their fortunes. Well, this evening we want to look at yet another aspect of this collection of psalms, and we want to look at this Psalm uh, 129 uh, under the theme or under the topic of suffering and how suffering, too, is something that is part of the life of faith but that this psalm helps us understand suffering uh, through that lens of faith as well. We want to see that because the Lord will not allow the wicked to prevail, believers can trust in the Lord uh, to do what is right. And we want to look at this psalm really in, in two thoughts. We want to think about the pain that is being expressed in this psalm. And then secondly, we want to think about the plea uh, that is expressed as well. First, uh, there is the pain uh, that the psalm expresses. In verse 1, it says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. 
Let Israel now say, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. That word greatly uh, can have the idea of quality, uh, great with a greatness, a great pain they have been afflicted. But it can also have the idea of frequency. Many times they have afflicted me. That here the psalmist is really beginning with this focus on their suffering. And you notice there that there's that parallel expression, let Israel now say. We said earlier in Psalm 124, that language was also used. That Israel was to say, if the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say. If the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been swallowed up. In other words, Israel was to confess their dependence on God. It was only by God's mercy that we were rescued. And you can see why the people of Israel, why the people of God were to come together with that confession. Let us all confess this. Let us articulate that hope. Let us express that faith that it's only by God's strength that we were delivered from certain doom. But now you see that same phraseology is being used uh, here in this psalm. Let Israel now say. What is Israel to say in this psalm? It's not talking about their dependence. It's talking about their suffering. They're to talk about the pain that they've gone through. Israel is to dwell on their afflictions, their troubles. And really that should cause us to ask the question, why would the people of God need to admit and acknowledge and to reflect on the troubles that they've passed through? But this psalm is stressing that. Let Israel now say, greatly they have afflicted me. From the days of my youth, we have been afflicted. You think about someone whose story, their, their life's experience from the days of their childhood is one of pain. Uh, certain troubles that have been part of their, their experience all the way back from the time they were a little child. If you're going to understand who they are, their, their experiences, the troubles that they have gone through are going to be an integral part of understanding their story. It shapes them. It is part of who they are. It has it is molded them in ways. And here the psalmist is saying, Israel, as they think about their story, it is one in which they think about it through the troubles that they have passed through. Derek Kidner is an Old Testament commentator, a Hebrew scholar, and Derek Kidner highlights that many nations, when they reflect on themselves, they think about what they have achieved as a nation. But Israel here, as they're to reflect on themselves, they're not to think about what they have achieved, they're to think about what they have survived. We have endured much hardship. Now ask yourself, why would the psalmist be calling on the people of God to think about that? Why should they be reflecting on their hardships? Why should they be thinking about their whole experience as one in which trouble has accompanied them? That is part of Israel's story. If you go back and you think about the story of Israel, that from the days of her youth, the time when she was in Egypt, she was a people who was afflicted. She was a people who was oppressed. 
They were enslaved by the Egyptians. They were opposed when they came out of the land of Egypt. They were attacked by their neighboring nations. They were a people that felt the hostility of the world around them. But here in this psalm, it is helping them to be able to come to grips with what their experience is telling them. Israel is to think about their many afflictions first and foremost so that they can grasp something of the awfulness of sin. So that they can grasp something of what misery is. So that they would be able to live not simply numb to what they have passed through, but so that they would recoil at it. That they don't just simply look at life and say, well, that's just what happens and become hardened to it. But as they think about their experience, it, it, it produces a reaction of recoiling from it. Israel had faced many uh, uh, afflictions, and many of those afflictions, you can say, were part of being part of a fallen world. They lived in a world where people are sinners and where people hurt and oppress one another, where people sin against one another. They were to be impressed by the fact that sin is real and sin brings real misery. They felt it. They passed through it. But the scriptures teach that Israel didn't just experience misery because of the sins of others. Oftentimes, Israel's misery was because of their own sins. They didn't just live in a world of sin, a fallen world of rebellious people, rebelling against God's authority and God's ways, but they themselves rebelled against God. They themselves were opposing God themselves. That's something that the prophet Isaiah makes perfectly clear. In Isaiah 51, Isaiah says that they were experiencing the Lord's judgments by what was coming upon them. And Isaiah says that their enemies would trample on their backs. That was because God's wrath was upon them for their sins against the Lord in breaking covenant. So why was Israel uh, to, to reflect on their afflictions? Uh, it was a terrible fate of suffering uh, and being beaten down by their enemies. It was helping them to come to grips with sin is real. Sin has consequences. Sin brings real misery into this world. We have felt it by the hands of others. We have contributed to it by our own actions as well. But you notice in this psalm, uh, it's not simply the recognition that suffering comes in this world, but how the psalmist gives a graphic, even a vivid description of the experience of suffering. The pain that is described here is not just saying that it was great. It wasn't just many times they had hardships. But in verse 3, the psalmist says, the plowers uh, plowed upon my back and they made long their furrows. You think about a farmer going out to plow the field. They, they plow the soil. They, they rotate the soil in order to prepare it for uh, plantation, in order to plant seed. But when you take that imagery of the discs actually digging into the earth and actually turning the soil over in preparation in, in making it ready for plantation. 
and you transport that to the back of someone's, uh, of an individual, or figuratively to the nation of Israel, you have an awful description of terrible pain. That's what the psalmist wants to communicate here. Sin brings real pain. We have known real pain in what we have gone through. And that is being uh, captured here uh, in the description that is given. That Israel is being pictured as being thrown down before her enemies and that her foes are driving up and down on her back, lacerating her back as they plow over them. When Isaiah used the same imagery, he said that their backs would be straightened, that they would be flattened instead of being curved. They would be flattened down because their enemies would trample over them like a road. And Israel here in this psalm is saying that that is the experience. Many troubles have come in this world. We live in a fallen world. We don't simply look around and say, that's just the way things are. We ought to recoil when terrible things happen. We ought to be, sh we ought to be shocked at the horrors of what sin can do and the tragedies that people have to pass through. Israel is being taught on how to think about their situation. They don't simply say, well, you can't expect things to be perfect. They recognized sin brings real misery and their own sin contributed to that misery. But in their suffering, they are able to look to the Lord. Notice how the psalmist transitions there. This is our experience. Greatly, many times we have been afflicted. And then in verse 4, he says, and the Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. Can you say that this evening? That in spite of all the hardships you pass through, the Lord is right in what he does. The Lord is right in what he does. Or does your experience cause you to be hardened? Where you don't want to trust in the Lord because of the suffering being so great. Here the psalmist is able to look to the Lord with his suffering. He hasn't been hardened by it. He's able to look to the Lord knowing that the Lord is righteous. So he has a grasp of the awfulness of sin, but he is also recognizing the Lord's work. Because when they say this, when Israel is to confess this with their mouth greatly, many times we have been afflicted. From the time of our youth, our story has been one of trouble. At the same time, in verse 2, the psalmist says, yet they have not prevailed. There's that comment. Israel's not thinking so much about what she has achieved, but the fact that she survived. They haven't been swept over. They haven't been wiped out. Why? Because the Lord is not done with his people. The Lord has his purposes, and he's not finished with his people. And so as Israel thinks about their experience and how they have broken covenant, God has sent them into exile, how they have been crushed by their enemies, yet we have not been completely done away with. Their intentions have not been fully realized. They have not prevailed. 
And so that ought to lead them to this understanding that the Lord was not done with his people. The Lord is righteous. That's what keeps them going. The same attribute that is the cause of them being punished because the Lord is just and will bring his judgment according to his covenant upon covenant breakers is the same attribute that becomes their hope because the Lord is right and faithful to his covenant. He will do what he has promised. The people of Israel, in all of their suffering, in all of the consequences that their sins have made them pass through, are able to appeal to the fact God has promised that he would bless sinners, that his promise would come from within uh, the offspring of Abraham and go out to the nations. God has promised that he would bless Israel. And so the people of God are to trust in the fact that the Lord is righteous. The enemies of God's people have not prevailed. We're still here. And so here is this uh, reflection on the pain that they have passed through. It is a graphic description. Our enemies have, they have decimated us. They have plowed us over. And yet they haven't prevailed. Because God's purposes are ongoing. And so the Lord is described as being righteous, as a God who will keep his covenant, who will act according to his nature and do what he has promised. Again, the prophet Isaiah speaks in a very similar way. In that same chapter where Isaiah said that God's wrath was coming upon the people of Israel for breaking covenant, that he would cause the people of Israel to be trampled over by their enemies. In that same chapter, it talks about how God would bring a great reversal. Three reversals. The first reversal is that the Lord will plead the cause of his people. The Lord would intervene for them. He would defend his people. The second thing is, is that Isaiah says the Lord will take the cup of wrath from their hands. They will no longer drink of God's judgment. There will come an end to it. And the third thing that Isaiah announces is, is that the Lord will cause their enemies to drink the cup of the wrath themselves. That those who made their backs like the ground and their backs like the street so that they could walk on them will suffer the consequences of their cruel actions. So there, both in Isaiah and even in this psalm, there is that language of a limitation being placed on the intentions, the plans of the wicked. You see that even as the psalm goes on, that the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. You think of a beast of burden, an ox, something that is carrying a load, dragging a cart behind him, dragging a plow even behind him. Those ropes bind him to that device. It, it binds him uh, to that great weight. But if you cut the ropes, that oxen is liberated from from the weight, from the, 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 the distress that he was under. And here is that expression being used that the Lord would intervene and cause his people who were uh, suffering uh, to be liberated from it. So here Israel is really reflecting, they're acknowledging, they're talking about 
their afflictions, their troubles. Life in this world involves much suffering. We live in a fallen world, a world where sin is real. We live in a fallen world where people sin against one another. We live in a fallen world where we have contributed to that sin ourselves. And Israel is to think about the awfulness of sin. It's not minimal. It's terrible. Because it really does bring terrible pain. It's like being plowed over. But at the same time, Israel is reflecting on this because they're acknowledging the Lord's work. The Lord is righteous and he will cut the cords of the wicked. There is that language there of looking to God in their hardship to act, to do what he has said he would do. And it's, but when you think about the psalm, what stands out about it is that graphic description. The psalmist could have easily said, we've gone through many hard times. The psalmist could have easily said, our story is a story of suffering. But he doesn't just say that. He pictures it graphically of being plowed over. It's meant to leave a lasting impression upon us when we think about their story. But in the same way, that lasting impression is really preparing us for understanding the experience of the Lord Jesus. Again, you go back to Isaiah, and Isaiah speaks about the coming servant of the Lord in the same way. In Isaiah chapter 50, the prophet Isaiah speaks about the coming servant of the Lord in a remarkably similar way, as well as in a contrasting way. In what way? It's a similar way because the servant of the Lord would also have his back plowed over. In Isaiah chapter 50, it says that the servant of the Lord uh, would experience that hostility uh, himself. He says, I gave my back to those who would strike and my cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Just as the story of Israel is summarized by suffering, so there would come a savior whose story could be captured with that language of suffering, that he would also give his back to the strikes, that he too would suffer. But there's an important difference. In Isaiah 50, when it's describing the servant of the Lord, it says in the very verse before it, that this would happen despite not being rebellious. Israel's suffering came because of Israel's sin. They contributed to their own rebellion and they suffered the consequences. But the servant of the Lord would experience something similar while not being rebellious. In fact, it says there in Isaiah 50, it explains why he would suffer. It says that he had been given the tongue of those who were taught and the hostility that would come against him would be a hostility directed at what he communicated because he communicated the truth and people hated it. That what Isaiah is describing is the experience of Jesus. 
When Jesus is brought before the high priest, you remember as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is brought before the high priest and he is being told he has to testify before God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. And Jesus answers affirmatively. He affirms that he is the Messiah and that he is the king, the ruler of the ages. But when Jesus says that, his people around him react with disdain. They say it's blasphemy. And it tells us that they began to strike him. And ultimately, they handed Jesus over to the soldiers who flogged him. Meaning by that, that they literally plowed his back. Now, what the psalmist is describing here as the experience of Israel, that they have been humiliated by their enemies. They have been crushed by their enemies. As actually something that comes to fruition in the life of Jesus. That he was struck, that he was lacerated on his back. Not because he was rebellious, but because he was given the tongue to speak God's word. And hostility was directed at him. The reality of suffering can be an impediment for many people in trusting in God. How can anyone believe in God? when there's so much evil in this world. The solution, though, is not to simply avoid talking about God or to deny that there is a God because there's suffering. That doesn't actually bring any relief to suffering. It just makes us harden to its presence. It is what it is. Instead, we are to see that the scriptures actually give us that relief that we're looking for. The scriptures not only provide us a way of understanding suffering, that we live in a fallen world and that sin is real, but they explain how the Lord is righteous and enters into our suffering in order to rescue us. That's what this psalm is about. Israel's story is one in which they could look back and say, many troubles, a life of suffering, but the relief that they had is, is that the Lord is righteous. And the Lord is righteous because the Lord intervenes. He fulfills his promises. And in the wisdom of God, the way that God intervenes, the way in which God's righteousness is shown, is by having the Son of God enter into our suffering and to allow his own creatures to lacerate his own back in order to address the problem of sin. That he enters into our suffering in order to overcome the problem of sin, to rescue us from its grip and its power. The good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus came into this world and identifies with sinners in order to rescue them from sin and its consequences. So as we think about this psalm, Israel is to confess. Real troubles characterize our story. Those real troubles come because we live in a world of sin. But we are looking to the Lord because he is righteous. He will not only set a limit to the plans of the wicked, but he will overcome wickedness itself. 
That's ultimately what the servant of the Lord does. A man of sorrows who gave his, his own back to be struck in order to reverse the effects of sin. He enters into our suffering in order to defeat it. But this psalm is not only talking about the pain uh, that accompanies a fallen world, but it also has a plea uh, in the second half. Verses 5 through 8, it shifts. And you notice there, uh, it is a focus then on those who hate Zion. As we mentioned in Psalm 48, Zion here is not just a mountain. It's not just a capital. It is talking about the city of our God. It is a place that is ultimately described as the destined mother city of the world. It is in this psalm, uh, uh, in Psalm 87, that the Gentiles will say, All my springs are in you, Mount Zion. So to hate Zion goes much more than a political statement. To hate Zion means to hate God and God's purposes. And if we hate God's purposes, we are setting ourselves up as enemies of God. Now, obviously, believers are to pray for the Lord to work in people's lives, for people to be converted. But this is talking about those who remain hostile to the Lord. And this plea that their purposes would be frustrated, that uh, it is focused on those who continue in their sinful ways. Charles Spurgeon says, if this is an imprecation, let it stand and let our hearts say amen. It is but justice that those who hate, harass, and hurt the good should be brought to naught, that those who confound right and wrong ought to be confounded, and those who turn back from God ought to be turned back. How can we wish prosperity to those who destroy that which is dearest to our heart? And then Spurgeon says this, This present age is so flippant that if a man loves his Savior, he is described as a fanatic. And if he hates the powers of evil, he is called a bigot. We should be people who have convictions about right and wrong. And if we are convicted about what is right and what is good and what is true, then we should be clear about what we oppose as well. The psalmist here is simply praying for God's kingdom to come, that his will, which is good, would prevail, and that which is wicked and evil would be undone. He's praying for what is good to be established and for God's kingdom to come the kingdom of darkness must be defeated. And so this plea here uh, is really highlighting what he knows uh, to be true, and he's asking the Lord to bring it to pass. May all those who hate Zion be turned back in shame uh, and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. Uh, he is pleading uh, or praying that they will be put to shame. Uh, that those uh, um, who publicly disgraced God's people will be put to disgrace. That those uh, who made advance on the people of God will be turned back in defeat. He describes them as uh, like the grass on the housetops. Again, using that farming picture. You can imagine the possibility of grains of seed uh, uh, landing on a roof uh, in the ancient Near East. And on those mud roofs, uh, those seeds could actually uh, uh, plant themselves and uh, grow up into grass. But the point is, is that there's not the depth of soil. 
that the grass will not produce a harvest, it will wither away. And so here is this imagery of something that will not last, it will not come to fruition, that their plans would ultimately come to nothing and pass away. So there's a plea uh, that they would be put to shame in opposing God, that they would be not prosperous uh, in their intentions, and ultimately that they would not uh, know the blessing of God uh, either. In verse 8 it says, Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. That was uh, a customary way of speaking. You think of the book of Ruth. Uh, when the passerbys would greet uh, the reapers uh, with the blessing uh, that is expressed there in verse 8. But here it's saying no such blessing will be uh, pronounced on the people uh, who have no uh, delight in God. They will not be blessed, but will remain under the curse of their sin. So how is this psalm really teaching the people? It's helping them to think about suffering. Their suffering is not meant to lead them ultimately to be hardened, but to recognize they live in a world of sin and that sin is something terrible, but to look to the Lord ultimately because the Lord is righteous. To know that suffering does not leave us hardened against God, but knowing that God enters into our suffering by his Son, And he overcomes the shame and the suffering that we endure and ultimately redeems it to his glory. God is a God who has acted and we are to trust in him even through our suffering. But ultimately, we're also to see in this that our suffering is not the end. We read there in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. If you're a Christian this evening, then suffering will be part of your story. But even uh, though it is part of our story, this psalm does not try to downplay the reality of that pain. The pain of being rejected by loved ones. The pain of being rejected by wider society. There will be suffering for naming the name of Jesus. But what this psalm is doing, it's not trying to downplay that pain, but it's trying to say it's better to trust in the Lord than to live trying to escape suffering. That it's better to look to the source of blessing itself than to try to shield ourselves from rejection. Israel is to think over their story in light of God and in light of God's purposes. The purposes of those who live in rebellion to God will not last, but God's purposes will. And so while there may be much suffering in this life, this psalm is really teaching us about what it means to be blessed. If God is for us, That's what matters. And so as we again continue to think about that blessing that was communicated on the people of God, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, the Lord be gracious unto you and give you peace. What does it mean to be blessed? It is to know that the Lord is righteous and has acted 
for your good. And in Jesus Christ, we see how that plays itself out. God has intervened. He has set a limit on the works of the wicked. The Lord is righteous and brings a deliverer to save us from the effects and the consequences of our sin. And we're able to live in this world afflicted, but not driven to despair. We know that our God is in control and that his purposes will prevail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would help us to live in our own situation, reflecting on our own experiences. And we ask, Lord, that we would not be hardened or cynical, but that we would be able to look to you, uh, knowing not only what you uh, have done in the past, but knowing that uh, in light of the future, it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in ourselves. Lord, it is better uh, to live in the fear of God than to live uh, in the fear of man. So we pray, Lord, that you would grant to us wisdom, uh, that you would give us discernment, and that we would be able to say ourselves that while we have been afflicted, that we have not uh, been defeated. Lord, help us to find our strength in you and to look to you as a savior of sinners. In Jesus' name we pray.